This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. It's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, you guys ready to go into the future? Gary F. Benger, he's going to take us there, and he's going to talk about his latest book, and the links will be in the description box, as well as, you know, to his website, so if you want to contact him to get on that ship into the future, he might have the Back to the Future machine, he's going to tell us. But Gary, welcome to the show, how are you doing today? Well, Kellen, I'm doing great, and thank you very much for inviting me here to talk with you and your audience today. I'm just delighted to talk about uh, my book, Unfettered Journey, and uh, peek into the future. Definitely, definitely. Um, let's just get right into the book and, and talk about, you know, what is it about and, you know, why you wrote it? Okay, well, um, it's a cross-genre novel uh, that's set in the near future, 140 years in the future, and I mean, the quick summary is that it's about an AI scientist named Joe who's seeking to uh, create true robot consciousness. And uh, on his quest to find that, he um, comes in contact with a mysterious woman who is on a personal mission of social justice. And uh, the story goes from there. I'll just say that. And uh, I think a key thing is that it's a hard science view of the future, um, a, a, a reality that we can really believe is highly likely, I think. And, um, and that and the social justice theme, I think, are very important. Okay, you say highly likely. So this, um, I, I know from doing research, this isn't one of the, you know, cyborgs are taking over. You get dinged every time you say a bad word on the street. Uh, you know, um, I'm thinking of so many different movies that, that the future. <laughs> well, you are exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, a lot of people about the future, they think about, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Terminator, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, you know, The Matrix. They, they're thinking about, I would, I would submit fairly unbelievable futures. Uh, there may, may be great stories, but Quite honestly, I think they do us a disservice because it gives the average person a wrong idea what's most likely to happen. Um, you, know, you know, for example, um, if, if you wrote a book 15 years ago, you probably, a lot of sci-fi writers probably missed uh, the iPhone, right? That was invented in 2007. So you could imagine a story that didn't have the idea that you could carry this stuff around in your pocket, right? And talk to everyone in the world and have the internet and the, and the phone knew where you were, right? I mean, imagine that's so hard to imagine. So, so why is that? Well, I think it's hard to uh, accurately imagine the future. You have to know a lot about a bunch of technologies um, to kind of get it more or less right. So a, a lot of writers um, kind of give up. <laughs> it's, it's easier to talk about dragons or, you know, faster than light speed spaceships. And it sounds pretty cool, but it's just not going to happen, right? So, so I think it's important to imagine the future in a realistic way because it's complicated already with our technology and it's going to get more complicated. And I think... I think that this next century will be one of the most 
um, difficult and interesting for humankind to traverse, to get to the other side of a century, century and a half. Really, really fundamental changes for humanity. And if we can't imagine it in a relatively realistic way, then we're gonna have a harder time getting to where we really need to be. Well, so I'm a, I think I'm still in the 23rd century due to Star Trek and I'm waiting to be, you know, teleported and beam me up. Um, <laughs> because, what, what do you think, what do you think about that? Because, you know, I know Trekkies would be like, hold on, we never thought we'd have these little pocket things and it would be tracking us everywhere. I'm sure you hear that all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, there's the, the science, the interesting thing is the science has narrowed down what we know and what we don't know. And, you know, the error bars, as they talk about science, have gotten smaller. So, so we do know it's, you know, you just can't go faster than the speed of light, which means that these ideas that, uh, you know, we will be exploring distant uh, planets around distant stars, you know, anytime soon is, is, it's just crazy. And in fact, I suspect, um, as an example, um, within the, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years with the space telescopes, we're gonna discover a really important fact. The question is, are there any ex exoplanets that are more or less habitable within any reasonable distance, you know, 10 light years away from Earth, right? And if the answer is there aren't, then that's really sad for us because <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, to, to, to accelerate a spaceship to a tenthful of the speed of light, you know, if you did that, it would take you 97 years to accelerate, get to an exoplanet five light years away, and slow down enough to actually go into orbit. You know, a century, right? I mean, imagine that. That's and that's a close one. So, so. And so I hope the answer is yes, there are some, so we can dream for the next few centuries after that. But, you know, that's now, so all, think of how much of the sci-fi that we now have grown up with that just will be kind of sad. It will never not be possible, you know, so. <laughs> well, what do you think about, you know, let's talk about the near future, especially with, you know, lockdowns and how things with education, you have a, you know, business degree from Harvard. Do you think Harvard, the Yales, the Princetons, all the Ivy Leagues, even where um, one of the schools I went to, the Harvard of the South, I call it, Grambling uh -huh. State University in North Louisiana, of all places. Um, Good you, football school. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Do you think that the future of school in the next, you know, five to ten years will change and will Harvard and the Oxfords be what they have always been? Um, I think that I think that education will change. Um, I think that these institutions have a lot of intellectual property, IP, you know, figuring out how, how to do things and they've got enough smart people to figure out how to turn and they've got enough resources to invest in making those changes. So those things tend to change slowly. Um, you know, and, and in terms of how we educate ourselves, um, I've got a, a thing in the book where, uh, you know, there's two mathematicians talking and um, they're standing there in the room with these little icons floating around holographically. And they're talking about how you can visualize the math. And, but uh, one says to the other, but you know, you still have to do the hard work of doing the problem sets because you know, we're not gonna be able to upload this information into our brains or anything like that. 
I mean, if you look at how the brain is, is structured and what we know about how we learn, uh, this is just not going to happen. I'm afraid it's not going to be easy like that. Hey, you know, you're crushing folks' dreams because there's folks who are just waiting to take the pill so they can start speaking English, French, Swahili, and every other language while they travel <laughs> the world the same way you do. So, yes. you know, wh what what are you seeing as far as, you know, we in America, in certain, you know, in Japan, certain places, tech is just real big, but you go even off the beaten path. And if everything was perfect here, you know, Nirvana, AI, automation, the same way the future is faster than you think in that book is telling us, you know, everything is, you know, 3D printing in 24 hours like they do in Guatemala right now. Um, do you see the rest of the world catching up to what we're in America in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? Or are we still going to have those rural places? Oh, I think we're, it's going to take a long time. And so, I mean, here, here's, here's what I... I, see, I think that for this next century, the two most important technologies affecting humanity are bioscience. And, you know, we're seeing it with things like CRISPR-Cas9 developing these vaccines in record time. And, and the second one, and the one I focus on in my book, is AI and robotics, okay? So, so let me focus on AI and robotics, because I think that gives you a sense of the change. Um, if you know, there's been, some, there's, we, we see automation in factories already, right? It's happening, it's taking jobs away. I think there was one of the major global consulting companies, I think it was McGinsey, that said something like by 2050, we'll have 70% of the jobs will be automated. So um, I don't believe that. Um, I, th and, and, yet, and yet, and also I'll say that um, if you look at things like the uh, Boston Dynamics robots, have you seen the robot dogs or uh, just for New Year's, they had the dancing robots, which was so cool, right? So, so you know, we look at that and go, wow, these robots are going to be here tomorrow. But, but again, I don't think so. I think it's going to be more akin to the automobile development, right? You know, you had Henry Ford developing an automobile, you know, in 1910 or something. And, uh, but then it took a long time to, you know, get windshield wipers and automatic starters and electrical systems and building all these roads and the legal structure to deal with what happens when cars hurt people and all of that, it just took a long time. So you think about robots, um, um, I, I, I think it's highly likely that they're gonna continue to get better and better and better, but it's not gonna be overnight, okay? But the other part of that is that I do believe they will get better and better. And they're probably going to be about our size because you know, we have trillions of dollars of infrastructure that's built for human size, right? So, so they'll probably walk around like us, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so now think about what that does with automation and jobs. Um, and that's a key point. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to automate stuff, but they'll keep on working and working and working over the years. And, you know, they'll make the robots that can see and they can be, you know, more nimble and it'll get better and better and jobs will go away. Um, about a year and a half ago, I went down to a, a conference at the Santa Fe Institute talking about AI and the barrier of meaning. <laughs> and one of the guys presenting um, talked about job loss and he described it as sort of a topology with hills and mountains and valleys and the water level was rising and the water level rising is the jobs disappearing right the lands disappearing so 
you know, at the top of those hills, there'll be some jobs that'll be there last, right? You know, you know, maybe uh, talk radio person like yourself, you know, <laughs> you know maybe strategist. Um, but I suggest that one of the jobs at the top of the hill is roofer. You know, the guy that climbs up on the roof with the shingles and all that stuff. Well, you know, that's a job that, you know, they won't get around to automating that for a long time because it's too hard. You got to balance that stuff. You got to do all this physical stuff. So it'll, you know, the roofers at some point will pay a lot of money. Okay. But eventually they'll automate with the robot doing the roofer's job. And when that happens, think about it. It's all over. It's all over when that happens, when the robots are walking around. And at that point, we have all these robots, but we have no jobs, really. Or we have different jobs, way different jobs. So, so, so just imagine that future, which I suggest is highly likely, right? I mean, we can, I mean it's, it's, I'm saying 140 years, okay? So here's the other thing that happens with that from an economic point of view. Um, you know, right now we think about the economy based upon labor. Everyone talks about labor efficiency, you know, and that kind of makes sense, you know, the way the capitalist system works. Um, um, you know, um, we, we, if you get more efficient per person, then there's more stuff per person. If it was just all handed out in some equal way, that would be good, right? <laughs> so, uh, but, but once you have robots, think about it. when you have robots that are mining the ores and smelting the steel and building the factories. And then when the robots are building the assembly plants that build the robots, when robots are building robots, well, then you clone could have, you know, 20 robots doing stuff for you, right? Because it's not really limited by the number of robots that robots can make, right? And as soon as that happens, it's totally divorced from our individual labor. You could have a gazillion uh, amount of stuff, right? It's just, it's crazy, right? But so I'm suggesting that that too is highly likely, which is a very different world than today, right? It's where, it's a world where we have a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, if you just take economic models and you like, met, you look at the GDP of the US and the world, you know, it's been growing something between one and four or 5% a year. I mean, China's growing like 10% a year. Um, if you just take the median of that number over the next 140 years, then simple math, my calculations say we will have something between 10 and 20 times as much stuff per person before we even calculate the robots making robot stuff in the equation. So a lot of stuff, but no jobs. <laughs> Definitely. We know robots, you know, can't get it right. I, I remember when the Roomba first came out early 2000s and going to grab that and returning it very quickly saying, hey, this does not replace good old fashioned, you know, vacuum cleaning. And, um, you know, um, if you're if you guys have a house cleaner, I know now with kids, I surely did but do. Back then I didn't. I was just being lazy and trying to be fancy. But <laughs> we're. Where can, you know, purpose, I know you talk about that a lot. Once, you know, all these things can be done or even half of them with automation, how do we then go find our purpose? Oh, that is an excellent question. Yeah, because a lot of us find purpose in working, right? And competition and all that sort of thing. But what happens when there are so few jobs around and, um, you know, what, what's the world like then? Um, you know, and how do we find purpose in that kind of world, right? Um, 
that's going to be one of the great challenges for humankind. What do we do, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so, so that, you yeah. tell up because you're at a place in life. You've been successful, Silicon Valley. You're able to kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Now you're probably finding purpose, you know, traveling and probably giving back, which, you know what, I spoil one of my golden questions. What is your community give back? While you give us that, how do we find that purpose? What is a community give back that you do? Just because my listeners will say, hey, you didn't ask the question. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> give us the, the purpose and, you know, the community give back, please. Oh, well, okay. I'll just, I'll just break, briefly answer that one. Um, you know, we, um, my wife and I, we spent a lot of time um, uh, with the mission of helping less advantaged kids find their own success. And that's uh, a lot with scholarships, a lot with um, teaching resilience and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we, we really focus on underserved communities in particular with that. So, um, you know, among the organizations we've been directly involved with in the last uh, 20 years include uh, organizations like Summer Research that um, send kids off on uh, summer programs and get them into colleges and a lot of first in their families going to college and that sort of thing. I'm the, I'm the first in my uh, family to go to college and, uh, you know, I have a great respect for people who are willing to work and, you know, get ahead, even if they don't have all the advantages in life. So. That's what we like to do. <laughs> That's the answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> so, uh, awesome. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so uh, let me let me mention. And uh, I, I talked said I, I want to talk about social justice, and that's a big theme in the book. Um, the if you imagine this world that I just described, which I will suggest is highly likely, okay, at some point, highly likely. So the book takes place in the year twenty one sixty one. So if robot, when robots are making robots and we've got lots of stuff, who owns the robots? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the question. I think it's a really important question because if there are a few jobs and only certain people own the robots, then, you know, they have it all. And, and then the question is, what does everyone else have? So, I don't see that as a stable situation, right? It's it's a not it's an it's an uh, unstable equilibrium from a mathematics point of view. And so the 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 sort of conceit in my book is this: is that the U.S. being a you know property rights driven country, right, and and uh, maybe less more into property rights and less prone to egalitarian solutions. So what happens is when this comes to a, a point about who owns the robot factories, um, there's a point where they, after the climate wars, <laughs> okay, where we're fighting over uh, uh, scarce land resources uh, and water resources and everything else in, in the world. Um, in the US, the answer is that they nationalize all the robot factories, okay? But the quid pro quo for that from the oligarchs who have to give that up, the quid pro quo is that they introduce a series of laws called the Levels Acts, where everyone is assigned a level from one at the top to 99 at the bottom. So you're assigned a level, and supposedly these are you know, going to be merit-based and you can move up and down in the levels uh, based on merit. But um, 
and, and, and these levels of acts um, restrain somewhat what you can do, you know, who can travel, who can marry whom, um, and certain other kinds of opportunities. And so there's some suspicion that the levels acts are less based on merit than they are on, you know, legacy. That's, so that's the social justice thing at the heart of the book. And as I mentioned, there's a mysterious woman who's fighting for social justice. So that's the book. That's the key message in the book um, about these levels acts. Now, now I have to tell you, I you know this idea was very very uh, central to my thinking for several years, and you know, the book just came was released in last September, and you know fortuitously the Black Lives Matter um, movement happened just last year, so that's just an accident. <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, do you think that the robot would have then the capability to, you know, um, treat everybody equal with opp the opportunities? And then to make it even more confusing, let's say the robots are tied into Facebook, Twitter, and they have, you know, their thinking, but you have someone who has all totally different thinking. Whether they are a Trump supporter or from like me, the school of George Carlin, of, <laughs> hey, I, you know, I don't believe any of these politicians because they all sell us out, but I want to say that where the robot will say, uh-uh-uh, can't say that, can't put, you know, and now you're kind of debating with your, your, your robot and that, you know, on Facebook, the thing is, that's their platform. They get to choose, but then do they get to, people say, they, they're so big, it's like they're too big to fail. So how do we get everybody in the same box because that's going to be difficult. And I don't know if that'll be interesting because I kind of like the debates. I like watching them. You know, Trump was, <laughs> Trump was entertaining to me. And, and the political debates, again, George Collin would tell us, these folks, and I've worked with them and for them, they don't care about anybody but their bottom line, 99% of them, in my humble opinion. So how do we get, you know, the, the tech to match up with all of our uh, multifaceted type of thinking? Yeah. So, well, well, I, I have a different uh, uh, concept of how the robots fit into the equation. Because as I said, the main character, Joe, is an AI scientist who's trying to create true robot consciousness. And, you know, what is, what is consciousness itself, right? And uh, by the way, one of the things I did after I finished up my 30 years in a business career and um, I could have time for passion projects is I actually went back to school I went back and backfilled an astrophysics undergraduate degree, and and then I started uh, uh, studying some philosophy, and I backfilled an undergraduate philosophy degree, and then I got a master's in philosophy, and uh, and so I was spending a lot of time on theory of mind, and you know what is the mind, right? What is what is that what is that I that's you right there? What's that at the center of you? What is that I, right? What is that thing? And so. So that kind of thinking, which I you know, spent a, a decade plus just thinking about that problem, th that's one of the things that informs the book about robots. And so, you know, can you create true robo-consciousness? And, and, you know, the book might suggest that, no, it's kind of hard. It's really hard because we don't even know what it is for ourselves, right? So, so quite honestly, the robots in the 
but well, I leave the question open. Can they really be conscious? And you have to read the book to see where I come out on that. But, but um, you know, the robots can be a little bit annoying. And actually, I mean, I think you're, you made a point earlier about robots. I think they will be annoying for a long time. They just won't figure us out. You know, they'll be getting our way. They'll be talking at us too much. And we're going, just shut up. Give us a little break here. You know, they'll be asking us silly questions. And, uh, it, you know, so I, I think I think it's mo the future is us yeah, working with our technology and being more annoyed by it <laughs> for the next century. But um, I think it's all about people working with people actually you know and i think that um it's it's not going to get any slower and we're going to have all these distractions uh and how are we going to find mental space and mental peace in there you know i mean uh, okay I mean, just let's just take the uh, the the social media that we're engaged in now think well, we've got our cell phones and we're constantly engaged right well what's that cell phone look like in the future now let's just think about that. 140 years. I mean, clearly, what's it going to be like? Yes, exactly. You pointed to your ear. I agree. I mean, uh, so in 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 unfettered journey, um, you know, there's a chip that's inserted behind your left ear, kind of up there. And then you can imagine, well, what's the screen look like? Well, it's uh, you know, you got a corneal implant in the corner of your eye, and you know, it's some blue future Bluetooth connected, and you just kind of talk to it like you might do to Siri, but you know, Siri. 15.0 and, and you just say, you know, you know, you, you say uh, you're sitting there in Florida and you say, you know, where's the closest, you know, this kind of restaurant and uh, you know, up pops on your eye, a little map and it says, Oh, that one looks good. Okay. Show me the way. And, and on your cornea on the little map is an augmented reality map overlay that just, you just walk and follow the, the little red line. Right. So, I mean, can you imagine that that's how it's going to be, right? I mean, I, okay, you're going to think uh, I'm a little, little crazy, but that's okay. I truly think, and I've proved it to myself, and I almost have my wife there who, you know, she's in medicine and she's like, okay, you, you, I, I hear you, but I truly think that phone, I don't have Alexa or anything, but, you know, we have Bigsby and, you know, you have the series. I think that thing can read my mind. Because there are times I will open my thing and it's something I'm thinking and I will want to put just how and it will say what I was thinking. I'm putting how. Now, I know about pixels and how, you know, the, it can, this can follow you from, from the phone to the computer, but it, I'm not doing that. I'm just having an issue of, you know, how far is a, a certain restaurant and I'm just thinking it and I'm like, wait, hold on. I know I have like 300 plus apps on this crazy thing but i'm like this thing can read my mind i'm not crazy and i've watched enough of the black and white twilight zone to know you know the technology is really here and we have to kind of just roll with it but i also watch black mirror which that actually scares me some of those episodes so i mean do you think that these um phones will add you know, when everything you've said will be able to read our mind where we don't even have to type it in, where it's like, okay, and it just shows us. Well, um, okay, 140 years, that's, I, I won't say no. I mean, you know, the Elon Musk was just demonstrating the Neuralink, right? It's about, they insert a little thing about the size of a nickel in the top of your head, and they're trying to connect it to read your brainwaves. Um, yeah, we'll do some of that. In, 
in my book, Unfettered Journey, I do have this conceit that, you know, you mostly talk to it, right? But if you get on an airplane, since the social um, uh, protocol is you don't talk out loud because you, you know, it's rude, you sort of, when you're a kid, you've, you know, you've learned a hundred keywords that you can think and the device can pick those up. So you, you know, you, you can think these keywords and, and the, the, the device will know what you're thinking. So it's still pretty primitive. I think it's going to be slow. Uh, you know, the human body has spent a million years evolving to do what it does, right? Um, you know, a, a, a big part, the biggest part of our brain is the V1, which is the, the visual um, uh, sensing part of your brain. Now, that's larger than a cat's brain alone, just that. So we're tied into vision and hearing. And, uh, you know, those move at uh, a really slow speed, uh, you know, 30 hertz or something. It's, you know, billions of times slower than computers. So the human computer interface is really hard to do efficiently. It's going to be really efficient just to talk to the darn thing. So, so, so you know, this whole cyborg stuff, I think it's just overblown. I, I don't think it's going to be very practical. But what to, then back to what you suggested when you said it knows what I'm thinking. Um, yeah, that's because of the power of, you know, hundreds of billions of instances and in these big databases, um, the computers can find uh, uh, correlations across a billion dimensions, right? I mean, we can think in three or four dimensions, that's it. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, as an example, um, right now, radiology. Um, uh, radiology, they, you know, they've got programs like Watson that IBM is developing. And the, the AIs can actually read x-rays better than the experts who've been doing it for 30 years. You know, and so what they've been testing this with is, you know, they'll, they'll have the machine read an, uh, an x-ray and the machine says, um, looks like, you know, this person's got this suspicious growth here. <laughs> and, you know, the expert missed it and they go, okay, let's go double check that. And sure enough, they're right, which is crazy. And no one can tell you how the black box knows that, right? That's kind of weird. How do we deal with that? I mean, uh, here, here's, um, here's the president of the Santa Fe Institute. He had this interesting thought about this. He said, uh, and I'll make up the example. Imagine that uh, a woman goes in, the AI reads um, the, the test and says, I'm really sorry, but you know, you're, you're, you've got, you're going to have breast cancer unless you have a, a mastectomy, right? And, and you ask the AI, how do you know? And it can't answer you because it can't explain those billion dimensions. So the, the, you know, my friend David Krakauer said, well, in that case, it almost becomes an oracle. It's no longer a science because science, you know, you have a hypothesis and you've got to explain the logic of how you got to the conclusion. But what happens when the machine kind of knows, but do we just trust it? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so that's really hard. So, but yeah, so that's sort of crazy stuff I think will happen. The AIs will seem amazing, but will they be like us? Will they be conscious? Well, that's a conversation I've actually had. My, my, my wife is a radiologist and she's, she's even gone back um, to our home country in Cameroon 
and to see how radiology works there and has, has worked there um, and took a month off to do that. And she's like, you know what? Sure, Kelly, robots, can, they can read faster, but it's the other stuff that we do that they're not able to do now. So sure, you know, read all of them until you get to that problem that, you know, I bet you, you know, 50% will have to come back to us because if we miss one thing, we're possibly to be sued. But more importantly, somebody could die, <laughs> you know? Yes. And, and, and so you, she's like, you need that human touch because, she, you know, there's, there's physicians who go out and say, hey, I've seen this a hundred times, you got that. And they're totally wrong because they've seen it a hundred times, but they didn't see what was behind that. So, you know, it causes bigger problems. That's what the computers won't be able to do, especially anytime soon. But, you know, I, I like to live in the fantasy land. Plus, again, I like to have those debates because they make, um, <laughs> they make good Just you know, purposeful time, just trying to, trying to learn and, and find out what we know and what we don't know. What do you think got you here? Is it the, you know, always knowing, you being a first-generation graduate, um, nobody gave this to you. Were you like the problem child where you just asked too many questions as a kid and so you're like, I have to be like a forever student and then write about it? Like, what got you here? What, what was the driving purpose? Jeez, <laughs> that's a really hard question. I don't know. I just think there's a, you know, an urge in all of us to excel at, uh, and find out what we're good at. And, um, you know, I could figure stuff out at um, fairly early age. And, and then um, sort of learned hard work. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, <laughs> we, we had uh, moved to a house uh, when I was, you know, first grade and there was an acre of land to clear and, uh, you know, we didn't have the money to do the landscaping. So we, my father cut down all these trees with a chainsaw, right? So there's lots and lots and lots of trees. And um, my job then was to cut out the stumps. And so I was wielding a uh, two-bitted axe when I was about seven. <laughs> and I had to do so many uh, stumps a night. <laughs> and it was really hard. <laughs> so, and maybe that taught me that it was probably a good idea not to have to, have to do manual labor all my life. And I would rather uh, <laughs> use my head than, than my arms. But uh, Okay, that could definitely do it that you know there's sometimes there's like that driving force somebody's called a name that they don't like or they're told they can't do something so they say you know forget you i'm gonna do it and just watch and so that could clearly be that you know not wanting to be broke is, is a lot of people's you know driving force to even leave this country because they're like hey i got enough money to be a king in a lot of different countries so yeah i just like to know that what why that spark if you know it may, that will be in the next book you guys yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you maybe that informs actually you mentioned that interesting example that informs certainly uh, my uh, woman character who i'm very very proud with about she's uh, just this fabulous character that has that sort of resilience and uh you know it's uh anyway i love my characters i think it's it's i mentioned this an action adventure book it's a love story um and um, so it's very much a cross genre book that, as I said, starts with hard science. I, I, I'm, my, one of my objectives was to give people a real likely view of the future so we can think about the real problems. Um, I, I think social justice informs it because 
you know, we hope that we've solved a lot of the issues that we have today, right? 140 years, God help us, we better have gotten past um, racism and racial injustice. Um, so I'm an idealist, I, I, I firmly believe that will happen. Uh, but let me ask you, do you think even in 140 years, do you think we'll all be sitting around the fire singing Kumbaya? No, there'll be no kumbaya. And you know that even when you go to, I know you've been to South Africa and you have, you know, 12 different official languages, Sabona, South Africa, but you have so many, you know, different issues from, you know, even who rides on the big bus and who rides on the combi for a much different discount and wherever you go in the world. I mean, you find these issues even when you go to Malta and you're like, hey, the Maltese put up with the, you know, um, British but they really don't like y'all too much because you come over and kind of have colonized their, their you know, <coughs> heaven. And so, no, I don't think there'll be a kumbaya moment, but we can, like Seth Godwin always talks about, find our tribe, find our pocket, and try as best to work within that. And, and you can always give back to whomever, but my tribe doesn't always look like me. They sometimes don't even have, you know, sometimes they have a lot more money than me. They have a lot more knowledge than me because I want to learn something um, rather than, you know, always having to feed people. So, no, I don't think there'll be a kumbaya moment. Do you? Yeah. No, <laughs> no. And that's why uh, that there's this central theme about these levels, right? I mean, I think one of the things that uh, speculative fiction does is that it gives us a mirror on our own time, even if it seems like it's writing about the future. And, and uh you know, that's, I mean, here's a question. Do we have levels today? There's a, too many levels to count. <laughs> even, even where you're at. And going back to South Africa, I remember going there pre-World Cup and friends of mine saying, I can't go in that bar, Kelly, and you can. And the same situation happened when I went to Kenya last year. Hey, can I use the bathroom, you think, on the street downtown? Kelly, you're an American. You can do whatever you want here. And so there's <laughs> levels just with that. And you have to be, you know, you have to realize that and have them work for your advantage, but also be able to bring other people in and say, well, you're going into the bar with me since I'm just a crazy American in this foreign country and they're not going to give us a problem. So there's definitely levels and, and folks have to get the book. You have to get the book, folks. I'm blessed enough where the publicist has, is sending me the book. Um, was hoping to have it prior, but it's okay because I love this stuff. And my, I think my last question, because I don't want to give the folks a game overload. Sometimes people get scared about the future, but do you plan for this to maybe go into um, film? <laughs> well, you, you never know about Hollywood. That's just such a, uh, you know, casino to see if you get in there. So no, I, I'm just, I'm just, um, happy to get these ideas out um, in as many minds as possible, but I think, because I think it's, uh, you know, this is not a world that is dystopian or utopian, it's some mix, kind of like today is, I think it's, it's dealing with humans and the way we are, and how do we make ourselves better, and, and how do we move forward together, you, you mentioned finding your tribe, you know, it's, um, but um, the book talks about compassion and, you know, uh, how do you have a wider circle of concern beyond just your immediate family and the immediate people that are like you, but how do you have a larger circle of concern? And, you know, I, I, I like to get those ideas out. So 
I, in fact, I just had my French translation um, released um, a week ago. Uh, so, and I've got a number of other languages coming out, Italian and Japanese and a whole list of them. So I'm looking to get the book out around the world now. Um, you know, and it's, it's doing pretty well for an indie book. Um, I briefly hit um, 10 bestseller lists on Amazon in January. Uh, so, but it goes up and down. That's, that's the, the competitive book market. And I'm just an individual guy trying to figure out how that works. So, but, but my purpose is to get the book out there and get people to think about and talk about these ideas. Because this is a challenging century. And these are complicated issues to work through. And I think... Um, if we all work together, we can build a better future for us and our great grandkids. We definitely can't make it any worse. This is this is great stuff. I just sent you something on LinkedIn on a conference. I think you'd be great just to you know show up called NAPTI. Um, and it's the the one I'm talking about is the one in Miami every year, but it's where the TV people, you know, they need to hear your story and it's a great thing and also mix that's in France. So it'd be a reason for you to leave the country once this whole COVID thing uh, clears out because, you know, great stories. We know Hollywood needs them because they're starting to repeat the same stuff. And it's like, I don't want to see the Wonder Years reboot, nor do I want to <laughs> see the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reboot. I don't. I like what I saw. I like my kids seeing the old one. This new one will be in a world I may not even understand. I'm like, hold on. That's that's not what Will Smith would have said um, <laughs> <laughs> back then. And, and you know, and, and so I definitely want the folks check the links in the description. You guys, you guys are going to be blessed. We're going to take the um, conversation offline, like, share, subscribe. Gary, I thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm going to check out that link. Really appreciate it. And you can get it. Unfettered Journey wherever you get books. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.